I am Anthony Degani, and I'm on staff here with RUF. Uh, Brian is conveniently on vacation right now, and I will be talking to y'all about God's judgment. So, um, <laughs> let's just say I'm excited. Um, but yeah, this, this semester we've been going through the book of Revelation, and we've been trying to show... Um, how these visions are, are peeling back the curtain, so to speak, uh, and showing us uh, what is going on behind the scenes. Um, we're sh- showing you that things are not as they seem. And so tonight I'd like to start by building a picture for y'all of what I think um, this passage is trying to get across to us. A picture that shows the results of God's coming kingdom pressing in on the kingdom of this world. Imagine as horrible as this sounds that one day you are faced with the reality that your child has cancer. A cancer that is slowly impacting their health, and if not dealt with properly, has the power and desire to destroy anything in its path. Yes, I know, as I said before, this probably isn't um, a passage that is a go-to feel-good Bible passage for your devotion. Um, but, But imagine with me this scenario and then realize this, that your loving response... The response you would without a doubt have is a response that hates the cancer growing in your child. A response that wants nothing more than for the cancer to be gone, for health to be restored. And this response, what I think this response shows us is that desiring something good, desiring the health of your child, it means that the bad has to go. We know that in order for health to be restored, the cancer needs to be dealt with and dealt with properly that there is no room for it in the healthy body we hope treatment will produce. Again, to long for the right things means that the bad things need to be erased. And this is a picture of what we're going to see tonight in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, a picture of the saints crying out for God's coming kingdom and the revelation of how that is playing out in world history. But thankfully, this kingdom is not coming without warning. Unlike chemotherapy, that attempts to eradicate the cancer immediately and without further delay, God's judgment in the seven trumpets is limited. He's extending mercy to the very cancer that will one day be eradicated. He's doing this in hopes that it might be cleansed and present in the new kingdom that is pressing in on the reality of this world. Tonight I will be reading starting at Revelation 8.1 and going through the end of Revelation 9. Uh, We were told in the prologue of this book that there is a blessing to reading and hearing the words of Revelation aloud. So please look with me at tonight's reading of God's word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. 
The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stinks someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like the crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Their number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they rep repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you uh, for Revelation 8 and 9, a text that is so um, just weighty um, and kind of confusing, Lord. I pray that you would uh, open our ears to the sounding trumpets, that tonight we would actually see your mercy and your love um, through, through your judgment. Um, Lord Jesus, um, Nothing that I say can do that, but the power of your word and your gospel, I pray, um, would, be, would be at work tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right in. Um, first, let's look at the cry. Why are these events happening? 
Well, in verse 3, we see an angel with a golden censer, and he offers incense with the prayers of all the saints. As these prayers rise before God, he responds with the seven trumpets. Through these trumpets, the Lord is responding to the prayers of the saints. It's the cries and prayers of the saints that are the driving force behind the trumpets. And we know the content of these prayers. We saw in Revelation 6, if you were with us, that the saints are crying out for God to bring his kingdom of peace, of righteousness, and of life. The seven trumpets are just like the seven seals. Actually, the seven trumpets are the seven seals, just seen from a different perspective, from the unrepentant heart's perspective. And if you were here last week, you may remember this, but the progression in Revelation is not always chronologically, but it's what John sees next in his vision. So these trumpets may feel different, but I want you all to see that they're in fact the same as the seals, but from the eyes of the unbeliever. Again, we see here that God's people are longing and praying and crying out for Jesus to come, for judgment to be enacted, and God is responding, and his kingdom is pressing in. And at first flinch, this might seem like a cruel prayer. Why, why would Christians pray for judgment? But remember, just like in my opening illustration, for things to be made right, the bad can no longer exist, and we know that. To long for a healthy body, you necessarily want the disease to be gone. The saints are calling for Jesus to come, to come cleanse the world of all evil, to end suffering, to bring justice. They are pleading for the kingdom of the Lord to completely replace the kingdom of this world, the the kingdom of death and darkness. And for the kingdom of God to come, the disease the sin and evil, it must be judged and put away. So these prayers are not Christians praying specific uh, curses on their persecutors or asking God to give what he or she deserves. But what's happening is actually what Jesus commands us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. I'm not sure if y'all realize this when you say this in church, but when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying the same prayer that is fueling the judgment and wrath shown here. We are calling for God to make earth look like heaven, for his kingdom to press into ours. And in order for that to happen, in order for good to replace bad, God must enact justice. So just a quick application before moving on. This means your prayers are actually doing something, that God is hearing your cries and has actually been using them to move history forward, forward to the day seen at the seventh trumpet, when history ends and the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But as we will see, this kingdom is not coming without warning. God, although perfect in justice, is perfect in mercy as well, which is why we are given this scene of judgment and wrath, why the justice being enacted due to the coming kingdom is limited and therefore can be seen as a warning, why the seventh and final trumpet has not yet blown. So if that was the cry, then what's the purpose of these trumpets? What is going on here in chapters 8 and 9? I'll give a quick summary of the first four trumpets. Trumpet one begins with hail and fire mixed with blood that is cast on the land and a third of the earth, trees, and grass are burned. This is a vivid picture of the environment being damaged. Trumpet two shows a burning mountain cast into the sea and a third is bloodied. A third of the sea creatures died and a third of the ships were destroyed. This is a vivid picture of commerce and the economy being damaged. Trumpet three, trumpet three shows a star falling from heaven that fell on a third of the rivers and springs, which embittered the water and caused even some people to die. This trumpet is a picture of the resources needed for life in this world being harmed. 
And trumpet four caused a third of the sun, moon, and stars to be struck so that their light might be darkened. Trumpet four gives us a picture of darkness, of people not being able to see clearly. Did you catch all that? Was, was your immediate response to imagine these things in some distant future or, or somewhere else in like the movie from the day after tomorrow? I think that's many of our natural reactions to the various scenes depicted in Revelation. But remember, this book is meant to be a blessing. It's meant to reveal and not conceal. The majority of things happening here are happening here and now, not somewhere else in the future. Trumpets 1 through 4, and as we will see in a second, Trumpet 5, they are simply descriptions of what will characterize world history in between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. The trumpets, through prophetic symbolism, they paint a vivid picture of what we should expect today, tomorrow, and every day until Jesus comes back. And trumpets 1 through 4 tell us that we should expect damage to the environment, damage to commerce, to resources, and to our ability to see the world correctly. But this damage is limited. It's partial, showing first that this is a warning to the unbelieving heart. And second, it's showing that we have been experiencing the effects, the effects of the trumpets for a long time. Moving on to the fifth trumpet, we see the progression of God's wrath towards the unrepentant world, now affecting those who dwell on the earth more directly in what is referred to as a woe by the eagle flying overhead in John's vision. This woe starts off with John seeing a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he is given the keys to the shaft of the bottomless pit, which he opens and out comes smoke and locusts that were given power like the power of scorpions. These locusts could not do harm to the vegetation on earth, nor hurt those who had the seal of God on their foreheads. But they were given free reign to torment, but not kill those without God's seal for five months. Here's the key. These strange-looking locusts all serve the angel of the bottomless pit the one called Apollyon, or the destroyer, or as we know him, Satan. So here you get a striking picture of Satan opening a pit and locusts coming out in service to him to torment those who have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit. This, this sounds crazy, I, I know. It is hard to picture and even harder to make sense of, but these locusts, they symbolize the spiritual forces that torment us in our idolatry. And the fifth trumpet shows us with a very powerful picture that world history will be characterized by satanic spiritual forces that torment people in their idolatry. Let, let's see if I can make better sense of this. If you were going to warn someone that the thing they were doing was hurting them, what would you do? You would try to take it away from them, right? It's very similar to what the Lord does back in Exodus, and any first century Jew would have seen the similarities. The imagery... The imagery is similar to the plagues in Exodus. What were these plagues? Well, they were bloody water, hail, darkness, locusts. And what was the purpose of these plagues? They were warning the Egyptians and Pharaoh, warning those who worship the river, the gods of the environment, and agriculture. You see, God was hitting the very things they worshipped, warning them to let his people go by attacking the idols they served, calling for Pharaoh to hear the cries of the Israelites and release them from bondage. Now, what I would like you to consider is the thought that these warnings, they're merciful. They're merciful. That sounds crazy, but did you hear the restraint? One-third burned, one-third bloodied, one-third darkened. Locusts only tormenting for five months. Why the restraint? It's because the trumpets are warnings. Much like when you point out the thing that is killing an addict, God is saying, look at world history. 
I keep dismantling things like money and resources because those are the things you are worshiping. The trumpets are warning you. In a world with natural disasters and droughts and famines, where there is poverty and stock market crashes and oil and nuclear waste spills and blind politicians, are you willing to see those as alarms functioning to wake us up? To see that the things we worship, things like money, technology, knowledge, power, that those things will not deliver us, that they will actually fail us. God is, calling, God is calling for us to look past the temporal and earthly security that we so badly crave and to see the coming judgment, the reality of his kingdom pressing in. And I know this seems strange at first, but wouldn't it be loving? Wouldn't it be merciful to point out the things that are hurting you? Wouldn't it be the most merciful thing to show you what is taking life from you? Y'all, that is exactly what these trumpets are doing. So we have seen first that the events of world history, that the trumpets are an answer to the prayers of the saints. And second, we have seen that they serve as a warning. So now how does the unbelieving heart respond? Well, we see that as the warnings come, the unbelieving heart refuses to turn away from idolatry. It refuses to repent. Now this is about, first and foremost, the unbelieving heart. But I hope you'll find that even believers, even those sealed by God, although they are no longer slaves to sin, and although the locusts have not been given power over them, even believers fight the temptation to submit themselves to their rule. They will, for a time, refuse to repent. And this refusal to give up idols either drives the unrepentant heart to complete despair, or it causes it to continually harden, plunging deeper into idolatry. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. Look at the despair. The locusts have been released and were given the power to torment those without God's seal. And those experiencing this torment will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. This is hard to read. I, I, I recognize that. This does not sound like a God of love and mercy, but this is showing us reality. This is showing us that life apart from God Life lived in, to the service of the things of this world, they'll bring us to despair. That the natural bend of the heart, even amidst suffering and torment, it will not turn to God for the free gift of grace. It will not turn from idolatry, but would actually rather long to die than accept God's grace, thinking that death may bring relief to the pains of this world. And if we don't end from despair, from the torment, well, then we instead harden our hearts towards God. We continue to flee away from him and further invest ourselves into the worshiping of the idols of our hearts. Verses 20 and 21 in chapter 9 state that the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You see, despite the torment of the locusts and the plagues brought on our environment, despite the Lord graciously revealing how the false things we worship will destroy us, despite the pain, suffering, and death, the unbelieving heart still refuses to repent, refuses to acknowledge the warnings, and further presses into idolatry. The things intended to wake us up, well, we actually twist and distort them and turn them into gods, into things we hope will give us life but never do. 
The torment and alarms allowed by God were intended to show us the weakness of what we trust in so that we look to him, but our hearts won't hear it. There's a quote from Madonna that some of you have maybe heard before, and I, I don't bring this up to make a specific uh, statement about her, but, but listen and see if you don't hear the despair uh, or even the continual hardening of the unrepentant heart that I think is shown uh, in the fifth trumpet. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. This is someone with incredible wealth and fame. Someone who will accomplish way more than I will ever, and probably most of us in here. Um, but what, what is being shown here, what's being shown is the same thing depicted in Trumpet 5. The same thing happening in all unbelieving hearts. The natural response of our hearts to the sounding alarms. The torment brought about by serving the angel of the bottomless pit. She thinks fame and success will satisfy her. But when she gets it, she is tormented. It fails to satisfy. And she is tormented that she must prove herself again and again. But instead of turning from that idolatry... She keeps trying to prove herself. Why do I keep saying our hearts just won't listen to the warning trumpets? That our hearts are literally hell-bent on destruction? Ricky Jones, who is a former RUF campus minister at Mississippi State, actually, um, he helped me see into the craziness of our hearts in this situation, so I owe a lot of this to him. But what makes our slavery to sin so hard to free us from, so hard to release us from, is that we choose it. When I say our hearts won't hear the warnings, what I'm saying is that our hearts actually choose slavery over freedom. They may tell us that the life we are living is true freedom and that the endless pursuit of these idols will bring life, but it's a lie. Just like Madonna, we look up and realize we are still mediocre. We're inadequate. So God starts hitting the things we love. He's pushing against our mortality, all with the intent of opening our ears. But we despair or harden cling to that which is killing us. And here's the craziness of our response, our constant returning to that which is killing us. Earlier I read the description of the locusts. They have, they have crowns of gold, women's hair, lion's teeth, breastplates of iron, and they serve the angel of the bottomless pit. And although they are given power to torment the unbelieving heart, we keep returning to them. Why is that? Again, John is using symbolism to show us something, to show us what these locusts are offering us. Do you see it? They are offering wealth, beauty, power, invincibility, and our hearts cling to that which promises to fulfill its desires. And did you notice the final description given of these locusts? What is the last thing we are told after seeing their ability to offer wealth, beauty, power, and invincibility? We are told that they have tails and stings like scorpions and that their power to hurt people actually comes from their tails. As our heart longs for, pursues, and maybe even obtains the things offered to us by the locusts, there is still something we failed to see. There is a sting in the tail. And when they leave, you feel that sting. You maybe for the first time feel the torment from their powerful tails. 
And what I want to ask you tonight is, have you felt the sting? You see, through all of this, I've been trying to show you that the unbelieving heart is under the power of the world and therefore is continually tempted to worship idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, tempted to seek life from the locust, offering the things our hearts crave. The things that we say, if I just had that, I'd be all right. But that's never true, is it? When we get those things, we are never satisfied. Maybe initially, but how long before we realize it wasn't what we thought it would be? before we feel the sting. Maybe it's your grades. You spend all your time studying and working and seeking that 4.0, thinking that that will satisfy you. But then what happens? Well, we're never good enough. We're never smart enough. We never know enough to guarantee that A. And when the, when the satisfaction of not doing well, in a class, or doing well in a class leaves, we feel the sting. It didn't satisfy. It left you empty. Or maybe, maybe school doesn't resonate with you. Maybe... Y'all don't really care about school. Let's try relationships. If I base my relationships on these things, on money, power, beauty, can I really trust them? If I think my looks will make me secure, will I ever be good enough? You may spend hours at the gym working on those muscles or spend countless dollars at the salon, but what happens when you achieve your perceived goal? Are you ever really finished? Do you feel once and for all beautiful enough? That's the sting the things we, you keep worshiping, the things you say, this will satisfy me, this will make me okay. When you get them and you, and you still feel the instability, the emptiness, that's the sting. These idols are fleeting. Just like the unbelievers seeking death and not finding it, just like them having death flee from their presence, y'all, so do our looks or our brains or our power. These things don't fulfill their promises. The peace offered actually turns to angst. And listen, none of these things, none of these things actually have the power to hurt us. That is what this text is saying. When is the last time someone died or was hurt because they were what I or you would call ugly? I'm serious. We desire these things and give them the power to torment us, but recognize not being the smartest, the funniest, the prettiest, that cannot hurt us. All it can and does do is torment us. You might be good today. The things of this world and the idols of our hearts may look like they're fulfilling their promises right now. But hear the loving warning of Revelation 9. There is a sting coming. And when it happens, will you recognize it? In light of this, in light of the fact that the unbelieving heart is persistent in its desire to pursue idols and rebel despite God's merciful warnings... Well, I think we need to answer this final question. Why is this vision given? Why does John find it necessary to include this in Revelation? Why show us the torment brought upon the unrepentant heart? More simply put, why show this if the unbelieving heart is past all hope? If you will, recall for a second Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol with me. This classic story is centered on the miserable old man named Ebenezer Scrooge. He encounters a series of spirits over the course of three nights. There's the ghost of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. But the scariest of all is yet to come. As Scrooge is taken through a series of mysterious scenes, he is brought to a grave and is shocked at the sight of his name on the headstone. He pleads with the spirit, cries for him to alter his fate, earnestly questions why he would be shown this horrible fate if he was past all hope. In response to this passage, I think we're forced to ask, 
just like Scrooge so desperately pleads? Why does God see it fit to include this passage if the unbelieving heart is past all hope? Again, another RUF campus minister, uh, Brian Habig, was very helpful in thinking about this. But the answer to this question, I hope you see the answer lies in the fact that this is a warning. It's a warning that is happening here and now. And it's a warning that points to the fact that revelation is to be a blessing. And that these pictures of limited wrath and judgment are meant to cause us to look up, or look back, rather, to another time when God's wrath was poured out. Only it wasn't his limited wrath, but actually the fullness of God's wrath poured out on one person, on his son, Jesus Christ. You see, this whole time you may have been asking, what about this mercy? I've told you how these plagues are limited and only a warning, but still, if they don't have the power to change us, If our unbelieving hearts only ignore the sounds of the trumpets and refuse to repent, well, then these warnings don't sound very merciful, if you ask me. However, what that means then, what that means is that something outside of ourselves must fix our unbelieving hearts, must seal us to save us from the coming judgment, which is why 2,000 years ago, God being perfectly just and perfectly merciful sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be a sin offering to be a sin offering for his people so that in him they would find eternal life, that in him they would find the wrath of God, not the limited, but the full wrath of God poured out on the only perfect and righteous person to ever walk this earth, so that in him we would not only avoid the judgment that we rightfully deserve for our sins, but as 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we like the multitude from every nation last week in Revelation 7, could dip our robes in the blood of the Lamb, making them spotless, washing them white as snow. And this is the call of the gospel. Over and over again in these two chapters, you see the warnings. You see the limited judgment being enacted by God. And I think our first flinch response, I think our first flinch response is to recoil, to recoil at the judgment of God. But this is calling you to see This is calling you to see that there is one who loved you so much that he plunged into the very thing you are recoiling at. There is one that took the unrestrained seven trumpets so that you wouldn't have to. And this offer, this call of the gospel, guys, it's genuine. It's genuine. This offers an offer of rescue for everyone, for anyone who runs to the Lamb and calls on his name, for all those who, when they hear the blaring trumpets, They don't just flee from the wrath, but they actually flee to the one who has already satisfied the fullness of that wrath on the cross. Because Revelation, although filled with visions of coming wrath and judgment, Revelation is not primarily about that. It's about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is abundant in grace and mercy, who sent his spirit to seal all who call on his name for mercy, to dwell in them and remove those unrepentant hearts of stone, so that he might cover them with his righteousness sealing them for eternity in his coming kingdom that is pressing in. That's an invitation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the opportunity uh, to teach on Revelation 8 and 9. I pray that uh, tonight our ears would be open, that um, for those of us who maybe never have or 
uh, have once, Lord. I pray that we would repent, that we would uh, continually come back to the Lord Jesus who offers mercy, uh, offers free mercy for all those who acknowledge their need of it. Um, You're a gracious God, and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.